If you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, there should be Bibles scattered out through the seating area. If you look around, somebody, you flag somebody down, I'm sure they'll be happy to pass one to you. And if you don't own one, we want you to take that one with you. We, that, that's our gift to you, and we'd love the chance to talk to you about anything that you read there. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. Uh, back in college, one of, my, one, of the, one of the best classes that I took, one of my favorites, when I look back on that time, was a music history class. Now, I wasn't a music major, far from it. I don't play anything, I don't sing, I don't have any musical ability, but I love classical music. I always have, since I was a kid. And this class helped to explain to me some of the things that I already appreciated just in my own experience. And, and one of the things that I remember that came out of that class was our professor explaining where overtures came from. Now, I, I know that some of you out there are actually trained in classical music, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but I was told that overtures developed because people used to go to operas like they'd go to parties, that it was pretty raucous, and they were, they were all carrying on before the thing was to start. And so the overture was like this, this, this moment where the music would come in and everybody knew to sit down. And it just gave, it gave some, time, some time so that you didn't miss anything when the singing actually started. And then, of course, it became a, a fixture in major pieces, like symphonies. It would be the thing that would open a symphony and and the thing about an overture is that it just gestures towards what's coming next, right? An overture is, is, a, is a short piece that introduces some of the themes that are going to come up later in the music and get developed more fully. So an overture is different from a thesis statement, right? In a paper, you want to start out with a, an introduction that, that clearly explains your argument and where you're going to head in the paper. An overture doesn't do that. It doesn't just lay out what, where the music is going. It points to it. it. It foreshadows it. It gives you a little taste of it and leaves you wanting more of it. I think the first chapter of Hebrews, and particularly the first four verses that we're looking at this morning, are really something of an overture to Hebrews. It's one of the most dramatic and most eloquent passages in all of the New Testament. The guy who wrote it knew what he was doing. He used all the things that that professionals in Greek would use to mark their writing as excellent rhetoric. Some of that's going to come through, some of it won't. But at the very least, what we've got in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is a taste of what's coming in the rest of the letter. Now, before I get into more about what we're going to say this morning, I want us to just go ahead and read it, to read the overture together. So if you found that, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So in our adult Sunday school class this, uh, this spring, we're studying the book of Psalms. One of the things we've already noted that comes up over and over in the Psalms is the psalmist crying out to God from a place of struggle, of sorrow or suffering, 
crying out to God, asking him why, asking him where he is. If the promises that he's made in, the, in his word are true, where are they now? That's something that uh, we've already talked about in the class. It's, it's just resonating deeply with most all of us who have thought carefully about our spiritual lives. There have been times where we want God to speak in a way that he isn't speaking, where we're really sensing the silence of God. It, it, it could come from any number of sources. I mean, for, for some of you, it may be because you have, you have really suffered in a, in, a, in a deep way for a loss of a loved one or, or through a deep period of depression. For some of you, it may have been more from a period of doubt where you, you really want to believe that God is who the Scriptures claim that he is, but you, you can't see him or touch him or actually audibly hear him, and so you, you want him to speak to you in some way that he hasn't to confirm that he's actually there. For some of you, it, it, it may be more just wanting to, to hear him the way the Bible stories talk about those characters hearing him. I, mean, I've, I think I've fallen prey to that temptation before, to think that God is somehow speaking less now because I don't hear him, because he's not like parting any clouds and speaking to me, because I, I wasn't actually at Jesus' baptism where the, the voice comes down out of heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. But the radical, the radical statement made by Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is that, he's, that God is actually speaking. That even in those times when we aren't hearing him in the way that we want to, he hasn't gotten silent. We just aren't listening to him on his own terms. The claim of this, this paragraph is that God has spoken once and for all because he's spoken in Jesus. Now that's a huge claim. It's a claim I think we can get at best if we, if we, talk, if we break it down into two parts. I think the paragraph breaks down nicely for us on that level. The first two verses are all about introducing Jesus as the new way that God speaks. So we're going to call that the medium. We're going to try to pick apart what it means that Jesus is now the way that, that God speaks to us. And then we, want to, then we want to separate out and think more carefully about the message. So if, if Jesus is the way that this message comes to us, what does that imply about the nature of the message and how we should hear it and receive it? Who is speaking to us and what does that mean for what we're hearing from them. That's where we're headed this morning. Uh, so the medium, first. We're going to look at the first two verses. Now, everything about these, this opening sentence, the first two verses are one long sentence. Everything about this sentence is carefully built to make a simple point. It's carefully built to show us that everything that's happened up to this point has been building to this. And then after this, absolutely nothing is the same. Let me read them again for you. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see the parallelism? These two, these two uh, verses are like mirror images of each other. Look, let's look, look at some of the details. So long ago starts out. It's a, it's, it's a hearkening back to everything that, that, the, that these faithful Israelites would have been thinking of from their own history. All the stories that they had heard about things that happened through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob or through Moses or through the judges or through King David long ago. Those stories that shaped their identity as a people and helped them to know who they were in, in distinction from all the other nations of the world. Long ago versus in these days basically a shorthand from the prophets for the time when the salvation promised by God was going to become reality. So we have long ago, we have in these days. We have long ago, God spoke to the fathers over here, to our fathers. Think again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, the great figures of Israel's history. 
And on, on this side, we have God speaking to us. Do you see the radical nature of this claim? This was a people who were, who were trained by their history to, to think of their founding fathers as this time of perfection almost. You know, like almost like you hear some people appeal to America's founding fathers as this perfect time in our political history where everything was just as it should be. And if we could just get back to those founding fathers, then we'd be cool. That's the way Israel thought about their founding fathers as, as, as an ideal to, be, to, to, to strive after, to try to attain again in their experience. But, but here this author is saying that, that those fathers are nothing compared to in these last days, God speaking to us. Their history is progressive. It's not about getting back somewhere. It's about moving forward. But, of course, the biggest, the biggest contrast in these two verses, and the one that these other contrasts are just meant to highlight, is this one. In those days God spoke by the prophets, but in our day he has spoken by his son. So why is his son so important? What is, what is the key that makes Jesus so important as the medium that God is speaking through now? I think we get a huge clue in this little phrase in verse 1. Uh, the, my translation has it at many times and in many ways. It's one of these phrases meant to describe the past and that, that's being contrasted with, with Jesus, right? And one of, the, one of the biblical scholars that I read this week, to you ready, actually said that, that the way this translation puts it, at many times, isn't quite as faithful to way, the way the word actually would have read then. It was less about the temporal nature of it, when the word came, than that it came in pieces. So more like in many pieces and in many ways, God spoke to us or spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I don't know if your translation captures that any better than mine does. It's not so much about the times, but the pieces. So here's the payoff. The point is that when God spoke before, he spoke in fragments. And he spoke, he didn't have to speak, it was always an act of grace, and he spoke truly. So it's not like what he said in the Old Testament needs to just be put over on, thrown into the trash heap now that he's spoken through Jesus. It's not that he spoke, it's not that he spoke in, in any way that wasn't accurate. It's that he spoke in fragments, in pieces. Now remember, this sentence here is supposed to highlight the difference between the ways God spoke in the past and the ways God is speaking now in Jesus. And given this detail about him speaking before in pieces and in different ways, here's the contrast. Here's what we're meant to see. Where before God spoke in pieces, now in God's Son he speaks fully. He speaks completely. And in such a way that all the pieces that he had given before come together once and for all. In God's Son, he speaks fully and completely and in such a way that all the pieces given at many times and in many ways in the past, finally come together. And here's an analogy I heard, given in a little bit different context, but I think it works here too. You know when you're doing a puzzle, especially like a really big one, like a 2,000-piece one or something? That's a big puzzle, right? 2,000 pieces or 200 maybe? I don't know. If it, Say it was a 2,000-piece puzzle. You get the, the key to bringing that thing together is that you've got the picture of what it looks like on the box, Right? And so you prop that box top up, and that's your guide when you're pulling off all of the, you're trying to pull together these pieces and, and, and make sure that they come together in the right way. Now, now, there's nothing wrong or defective about the individual puzzle pieces, right? That what they depict on themselves is true. And put together in the right way, it forms a tapestry that's beautiful, and that points to something that's, that's real and bigger than itself. Similarly, I think we're to see based on what Hebrews is saying here, that the Old Testament spoke truly 
And it was an act of grace that God did not have to give to us. But it spoke like a bunch of puzzle pieces that needed some sort of unity to bring them together. And that when God speaks in his son, rather than at many times or in many pieces and in many ways, when God speaks through his son, he speaks fully and completely so that all the pieces come together once and for all. The point here is that God in his grace has been speaking to his people from the beginning. But before, he spoke in such a way as to create expectation, to point forward, to cast shadows, where here his message is fully revealed. Here, in Jesus, in the the box topped the puzzle, we have everything that we need to know about God and how to relate to him. Now, much of Hebrews is given to making this case, to pointing out, uh, remember, this, this paragraph is kind of like an overture. It's kind of hinting to things that are going to come up later in the, the symphony, if you will. Much of Hebrews is given to making this case, to showing how the Old Testament pieces ultimately point forward and get fulfilled in and explained better in Jesus. We're going to look at it a lot. But here's how, just to, just to put a wrap on it, here's how N.T. Uh, Wright puts it. I love the way he puts it. This opening sentence, referring to the first verse of Hebrews, isn't just a rhetorical flourish. It tells us clearly how the argument of the whole letter is going to run. Again and again, we start with a passage from the Old Testament, and the writer shows us how it points forward to something yet to come. Again and again, the something it points forward to turns out to be Jesus. The point is that Jesus is the ultimate medium who tells us everything that we need to know about God. Now, that said, what might we learn about the message that comes through Jesus and about how we're to receive that message if we know this about the medium? Now, it goes without saying, right? It's kind of a, uh, the medium is the message is one of those phrases that gets batted around a lot. You guys have heard that. It goes without saying that there's this close connection between the way you say something and what you're saying, that those two things have to fit with each other in some concrete way. And, of course, it goes without saying, I think, that some media are better suited to some messages than other ones are, right? But it's also true that the, the, the medium that you choose can end up shaping the message that you give, right? The medium that you choose can end up shaping the message that you give. So, for example, one of the things that historians get upset about is the disappearance of letter writing in the face of emails and text messages and Facebook posts, right? Right? Those letters that so many of us have depended on to learn about the past for so long are now going away. Now, on the one hand, it's not that they're just disappearing. A lot of letters that were written in the past disappeared. It's not just that that in this digital age, it's going to be harder to find record of the past. In fact, I think it's going to be easier for historians to figure out what people were saying in this day and age because they've got Gmail, right? Gmail, you never delete anything. It just keeps growing and growing and growing, and and you never get any closer to the end of it, it seems like. So, So a record is not the problem. The problem is that people are saying different things. They're communicating different kinds of content, and it's shaped to this different way of communicating. So in letter writing, you've got these famous collections like John Adams, right, writing to his wife Abigail, giving us some of the best insights of what it was like to live at the end of the 1700s and the early 1800s. Or you have, you have Adams and his letters to Thomas Jefferson. The two of them are these old curmudgeonly guys whose, whose time in the public eye has, has passed away, and now they're just sitting in their houses writing to each other, right? In those letters, we get some of the best 
dialogue about what the American system is supposed to be about. Now, can you imagine what they would have said if they were texting each other instead of writing letters to each other? Right? Can you imagine, for example, Thomas Jefferson sending this famous line to Adams via text? May we not even say that that form of government is the best which provides the most effectually for a pure selection of these natural aristoi into the offices of government? Winking smiley face. <laughs> Obviously, the, the, the way that we communicate, the medium that we choose, ends up having an effect on the message. Now, the reason I go into this great detail is to say, to, to, to frame this question. If Jesus is the medium... What does the fact that God has spoken by his Son imply about the message and how we should receive it? What does the fact that God has spoken in this way imply about the message and how we should receive it? Now that question is a little different from what's actually in the message. And the rest of, the, the rest of Hebrews is about the content of this message, and we're going we're gonna to break it apart um, in, in great detail over the next year. But what we're asking now is, how are we to receive whatever it is that Jesus has said to us because we know that Jesus is the way that he's spoken to us? I hope that distinction makes sense. Let's get at the question. I think that's what the second part of this paragraph is meant to do. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 breaks down into two parts. One of them is to introduce this dramatic contrast. Before God spoke in this way, and now he speaks by his son. The next two verses, verses 3 and 4, are all about the son. They give us character traits. They list off several things that are true of him that help us know what it's going to be like to receive a message from this source as opposed to through the prophets. So we're going to unpack those. I want to to mention three in particular. Three in particular. What's true of this message if it comes by Jesus? First of all, we can rely on it. We can rely on it. If the message comes from Jesus, it's uniquely reliable. So in verse 3. The one who th- Jesus, the, the one through whom God speaks, is called the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What does that mean? The message that we're looking for, the one that came in part by the prophets and that now comes through Jesus, is, is first and foremost a message about God, about what God is like, and about what God expects from us. It's a message that's meant to make knowing God possible. So, if God's final message comes by his Son, who is God made flesh, then this message about what it takes to make knowing God possible comes from a source that we can rely on. It comes directly from the one who sets the terms by which we come to know him and who who alone really knows his own identity and is free to communicate it. So a message that comes from God himself, in other words, through his Son, is one that you can trust Last week we talked about that as the difference between a primary source and a secondary source, right? When you're, you're getting a lot of history today. I'm sorry about that. But maybe if you remember back to your college history papers, there was probably like some minimum number of primary sources you had to look at, things that were said by the people you were talking about versus secondary sources, things said about the people you were talking about by somebody else. Jesus is the ultimate primary source because in him, God himself speaks, I think that's what we're meant to see from this phrase in verse 3. This phrase about him being the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, there's a lot of mystery here, and it's really, really complicated because it invites us into what the Trinity is like and how the Father and the Son are the same, are one and yet distinct at the same time. 
And there's a, t- there's a lot there that we're just not going to even try to go into today. I'm happy to do that. I, I would actually love to do that uh, over coffee later or even, even today after the message. But, f- but for our purposes this morning, one of the ways that, that the church has gotten at this distinction between God and his son and the sameness between the father and the son is to see the son as the eternal, perfect reflection of everything that God is. One of the ways that we get at the distinction between them and the sameness between them is to see the Son as the perfect and eternal, always existing reflection of everything that the Father is. The way one, uh, Jonathan Edwards has this amazing um, essay on the Trinity that he wrote like 300 years ago, and he uses this image a lot to try to get at it. And, and one of the things that he says is that it's almost as if, if drawing from Hebrews 1, it's almost as if what we're, what we're meant to see is Jesus as the eternal idea that the Father has of himself. And it's perfect, and it's, and it's, and it's true in its most detailed sense. It's the exact imprint. Jesus is everything that the Father is because he is the perfect idea and eternal idea that the Father has of himself. And I know that that is like a mind-blowing thing that we, we just don't have time to get into today. But to, to try to get at what the, the significance of this exact imprint language is that Hebrews 1 is using. We have to go here. Most of, the, uh, most of what I read about this word that comes through my translation as, as the exact imprint emphasizes that it's, that it's actually from this Greek word that sounds a lot like our English word character. Character. And that, it go, that mostly it was used for like some sort of stamp that you would, that you would, that you would uh, pound into metal to make a coin or to make some sort of image of, of like Caesar or... The, or, or whoever you were trying to honor at that time. And that the stamp, that, that the imprint matches perfectly what was on the stamp. That's the point. That's what character is, is, is the imprint left perfectly in the middle by whatever happened to be on the stamp. You can see where, where how, you can see the connection between character. Think not so much character in a story, though there's some overlap there, but like uh, character in the alphabet. I'm going to go back to the old style of printing where where the little metal thing that, that takes the ink and pounds it onto the page is the, is the character that gets, that gets left on the page. That's what we're meant to see here. Only we're meant to see Jesus as the perfect and eternal imprint of exactly what God is like, exactly reproduced. So to bring it home, the point is that because Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father, we can trust what we see in him. There's no perfect analogy of this other than the one that Hebrews has given us, but I tend to think of it almost as the difference between, between those old Disney cartoons, like the ones from the 50s where there's lots of lag between their movements and they're black and white and they're kind of crazy. I guess those were in the 50s. Maybe it was even earlier than that, actually. But the difference between that and between a Pixar movie seen in 3D at the IMAX, there's a difference in the, the imprint of what's being, of what's being described. There's a, and there's an exactness to the Pixar that just isn't there in the old black and white drawings of Mickey Mouse. I think the same thing holds true for what is said through the prophets versus what is said through Jesus. It's not that it's untrue what's said earlier. It's that it's not as full, and it's not as, it's not as reliable in the sense that what's said through Jesus is, what's said through him and seen in him is to see God himself and to hear directly from God himself. Or... As the author of John put it, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. So what does it mean about the message and how we receive it? If it comes through Jesus as its medium, it means that we can rely on it because it is God himself speaking to us. That's number one. Number two, if Jesus is the medium, what does that mean for the message and how we receive it? Secondly, means that we have got to accept it. We've got to accept it. Now, I mean that not so much that we've got to like it, so much as that we've got to hear it and obey it, that it stands in judgment over us in a way that, that no other message from any other source could. So when presidential candidates, for instance, take us, call us to take back America, right? Or they, they try to tell us to, to care about this issue over this issue and to, to vote on that basis, when, a message, when that message comes to us through that medium... We know that we're free to take it or leave it. We can vote for them or not vote for them. We can choose whether or not to believe them or not, right? It's our choice. But when a policeman pulls you over and asks you for your driver's license and your registration, you have to hand it over, right? There's no choice there. It's a different medium. And because of the authority that comes with this particular medium, you've got to accept it. And you just do what it says, right? Well, the next next fact in this list of facts about Jesus in verse 3 is that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That one kind of goes hand in hand with a fact in verse 2. We're told that it's through him that God created the world. So we have this image of Jesus as the one who is the reason that there's something rather than nothing. We're not here if not for Jesus creating us. And he's the one who upholds us. He's the reason we're still here, that we don't just dissolve. And there's even more to it. One, one uh, One commenter on this word, this word for sustaining or upholding, mentioned that it's much less like the image of Atlas, you know, the old deity who's, who's sort of holding the world on his shoulders. He, he bears the world on his shoulders and just keeps it holding up and holds it in place. It's not that. It's, it's, to, it's, it's not upholding it in that sense. It's to carry it along. The emphasis is that Jesus not only created the world, he not only holds it in existence, but he's the one who's guiding it towards a, a, an end that he has set. So the package deal is, that we are here not because of our own will. We're here because Jesus decided to create us. We're here to serve not a purpose that we decide, you know, to sort of find ourselves and do what we want. We're here to serve a purpose that Jesus is guiding us to as he guides the whole world that he's created to, that pur- to, to its purpose. And if that's true, then when we hear from him, a message from him, we got to accept it. He speaks with absolute authority. That gives him an absolute authority over us that requires we listen to him. Now, normally, that's not how I receive a message, including the message of the Bible. I'm just going to be honest. I'm a contrarian by nature, as any of you who know me or have talked to my wife can attest. It's sort of this instinct in me that just pushes back on everything, plays devil's advocate by just, just, just in me. I can't stop it. Now, our t- now, my typical reaction, and if you're like me, this is, this is your reaction too, when you bump into something in the Bible that you don't like, that just doesn't really sit well with you, my typical reaction is to say, I'm not sure whether I can accept that, right? Have you ever said that? I'm not sure whether I can worship a God who's, who's like that. So that obviously can't be true, right? Because I couldn't worship him if he's like that. Now, you may have that reaction to some of what's coming in Hebrews. There's a lot of stuff in Hebrews that's really, really different from the way we think about things. A lot of imagery, a lot of blood flowing, a lot of sacrifices that seem primitive to our modern way of looking at things. You may, have that, you may have that impression. But if this is a message that comes to us by the one who's the reason we're here and the one who is the, is the author of where we're headed, 
then it's a message that we don't get to sit back and say, do I like that? Do I not like that? Is that how I really think things are or not? It's a message that we've got to submit to. It speaks with authority. Now, here's the thing. As hard as that might be for us to do, to to accept something that just doesn't sit well with us, I think it's actually a beautiful, even liberating thing to exist under the authority of someone who made us and is guiding us and who made us with a loving purpose that is bigger than us and better than we can understand. In other words, there's a, I think there's a true freedom to be had in boundaries that are built for us by a wise designer who wants our good. Uh, th- uh, this last couple of weeks, um, I, I reread with some friends G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. I don't know if you guys have read that. It's awesome. There's one back here on the table uh, that, that you're welcome to if you want it. One of the things that Chesterton spends time talking about is authority, the authority of, of God and how uh, God and, the, and mediated through the church and how, what it's like to, to hear things that, that may not sit well with us, what it's like to accept them, what it's like not to be your ultimate, the ultimate decider over what is and what isn't. And I'm going to borrow an analogy that he uses, and I'm going to tweak it for our context. He talks about, he's talking about this as a liberating thing, to recognize your own limits, that you have boundaries around you that, that say what is and isn't possible. It's kind of like, the, the, the way that boundaries can be liberating, it's kind of like this, um, this child care center that's over on Edge Hill Avenue. I used to drive by it every day. I, I don't know if it's like a preschool for faculty kids or what, but it's right over off Edge Hill, next, kind of next to USN, near Peabody. And about the time I'd be going home every day, it seemed like there was always a yard full of kids. And there was this high fence that protected their playground from Edge Hill Avenue. Now, Edge Hill is not like a freeway. You don't have people flying through there at all times. But it's not an insignificant danger, right? If they were to get into that road, they could die. But these kids had no sense of that danger. They were batting balls around and you know, swinging and sliding and doing all the things that kids do. They were screaming and hollering and having, having a blast. And the reason that they were able to, to be free to express themselves, to enjoy each other's company, to enjoy the, the, the toys that were made available to them, the reason that they were free to do that is that they lived within the boundaries that had been set by them, by people who loved them, who were bigger than them, knew better than them, and knew to put a fence there, right? So it's that fence that allows them to truly be free. You can imagine a kid that knew what was good for him and didn't have a fence would be kind of cowered over next to the building, maybe not, not, any, not, not nudging anywhere close to the road for fear of getting hit. These kids didn't have to worry about that because they lived under authority. And that authority, established by them by those who knew better, was liberating. I think that's the way, that's the way that we can encounter Jesus' authority. When he speaks to us, he speaks as the one who made us and who's guiding us towards his purpose, a purpose that trumps anything we might want to do with our lives. So when he speaks, we have to listen. But that can be liberating. Because it frees us to be who we were made to be and not who we feel like we've got to be. That's number two. Finally, if the message that God speaks through his son comes by his son, what's true of the way we have to receive it? We, we have said we've, uh, we can rely on it because it comes from the horse's mouth, so to speak. It's a primary source from the exact imprint of who God is. We've said that we've got to accept it because it comes from the one who has created us and is guiding us along towards his purposes. And finally, we can rest in it. We can rest in it if it comes by Jesus. The next detail that Hebrews gives us, 
Remember, the string of details is all about explaining what's significant about Jesus as the one who, who gives this message. What's significant about him? The next detail that's given to us is this. After making purification for sins, he sat down. After making purification for sins, he sat down. The message by Jesus, that comes to us from Jesus is a promise that the purification that we need from our sin has been finished once and for all. And the reason that we can trust that this purification has been finished once and for all is that Jesus is sitting by, his right, by the right hand of his Father. And the reason we can trust a message of purification and perfect hope that comes from Jesus is the fact that Jesus is even now seated from all of his work. Hebrews is, is given much of the attention in it, maybe most of the attention in it, is given to this work of Christ, whereby he takes on what we owe, the sins that have corrupted us, that we have willingly chosen, and he goes to the cross, giving up himself, uh, his, perf- his perfect life given as an offering for us that makes us perfect as if we had done what he had done. It's a great exchange and a perfect sacrifice. That's what Hebrews is about. We can trust the hope that's in that message. We can perfectly hope in it because he is sitting down. Now, to an extent, the point of Jesus sitting down, as mentioned in verse 3, is that he's enthroned now. It's a, it's a picture of Jesus finally, once and for all, formally being established on his throne to rule over everything that is. But I think there's more to it than just this enthronement. There's, there, there, there's something else, something powerfully symbolic about his being seated that I think really connects with our experience. Think of the pleasure that comes from sitting down at the end of the day, right? Isn't that symbolic? Isn't that powerful? From sitting down once and for all? This, it makes me think of my wife. She's not in here, so I get, I'm going to brag on her freely, uh, hopefully not embarrass her because she's not here. You guys just don't just keep this between us. Nobody works harder than her. I've never known anyone who works like she does. She spends her days engaging our precious, high-maintenance little boy. She does consulting work on the side, wherever she can find a break. She keeps the house remarkably clean, much cleaner than is even necessary. She does laundry. She feeds me with absolutely no help. Walter and I are very needy. Because of her personality, she just won't rest until everything is done for that day. She won't. She, can't even, she cannot sit down until she's done for the day. That's the way her personality works. But there reaches a point on those nights that we've got to ourselves where she goes and she grabs her PJs and she grabs her favorite blanket and she picks out this, this one favorite spot on the couch and she sits down and that's it. She's done. At least for that day. For me, when I think, when I think of myself sitting down in similar situations, it's, it's always about my cushy leather recliner that Lindsay bought for me right when we got married, even though she has hated to this day the aesthetics of it. It's this huge, bulky thing that just wraps me up in leather when I sit in it, and it's awesome. <laughs> I think about Sundays, because I know you guys think we preachers only work for about half an hour once a week. In my case, more like 45 minutes once a week. But actually, a lot of time and energy does go into preparing for Sunday. So when I'm done on Sunday afternoon, there comes this precious moment where I just sit in that recliner and just let the leather just envelop me. And another Sunday's in the books, and I haven't been run off yet. Now, here's the remarkable thing about Jesus sitting down. This is where my analogies break down. 
for me, there's always another Sunday coming, right? And for Lindsay, Walter's always going to wake up earlier than we expect the next morning. But for Jesus, he sat down once and for all because he's finished his work once and for all. Notice how the, don't miss the tenses in these verbs in verse 3. It is only after making purification for sin once and for all that Jesus sits down. Not after making today's purification, not after the Old Testament system making this year's purification, but after making the purification for sins, he sits down once and for all. And here's the payoff. Because God's message, the one we're going to be unpacking through Hebrews the rest of this year, the one that has so much to do with him taking care of our sins so that we don't have to pay for them, because that message comes from the Son who is sitting at his right hand once and for all. It's a message of perfect hope. Our hope for life in God's presence, a life where we're pleasing to him, is a complete one because nothing is left to be accomplished. Now, let me press this in just a bit further for the last couple minutes. You got somebody in your life whose opinion of you really, really matters to you? Someone who you feel like you've got to please to be okay with yourself? Someone who whose opinion of you, as it sways back and forth, determines how you feel even in that day? Uh, Probably all of us have someone like that. Maybe for you it's a parent or even a spouse or a good friend. Maybe you know the painful experience of what it's like to, to feel as if you've never really satisfied that person. And even times that you feel like you have satisfied them, you're only one misstep away from upending that apple cart, right? from seeing the pleasure you got from satisfying them dissolve, from losing that status. Now, imagine if you had to relate to God in that way. Imagine if you had to relate to him as one who one misstep could, could, could end to an upended relationship that's broken. Imagine if what Jesus accomplished on the cross only gave you a pass for everything you'd done up to this point, sort of wiped clean the record that you had and gave you a fresh start. Imagine if that's all that he did. You'd never be free. You'd never be truly at peace, at least not if you're realistic about yourself. Because no matter how successful you may be now, who knows what tomorrow is going to bring, much less next year or next decade, right? Any hope that's in our own performance, our goodness, our freedom from sin is an empty one, and it's a fragile one, and it's going to get crushed. At the very least, it is always subject to the twists of the future. But the message of hope that's brought to us by Jesus through that medium it's a perfect gospel because Jesus sat down once and for all your status before God who you really are, your true identity because it's resting in him and because he is sitting is unchanged it's unchangeable because it's accomplished by Jesus so Hebrews opens with a call to us to listen That's an image. That's a call that comes up over and over throughout the rest of the book. Remember, this passage is like an overture. It gestures towards what's coming. And again and again, we're called to listen to what's spoken, to heed it. It's a call to listen that has a weight to it because of who is speaking. Because when the Son speaks, it's trustworthy. We can rely on it. It's binding. It calls us to something that's not optional. And it's perfectly hopeful. So I began the sermon by asking you if you struggle with the silence of God. If you've had times, maybe even recently, maybe even this morning, where you have felt the absence of God and have failed to hear him, 
Maybe it's because it's a, a dry time for you and you, you really want to experience something about God and, and, and you want to feel this connection to him. It, it, for whatever reason, if you're feeling that, I want to ask you again to consider Jesus. Now, I know this is a bit abstract. It's a difficult concept to lay hold of and to, and to bring down to earth, and it's one that's going to take us the rest of the year to fully unpack. But for now, consider if you're wondering why God is silent, that he claims here in Hebrews 1 that he isn't silent, that he will never be silent again because he has spoken once and for all in Jesus. That if you look to Jesus, he is the word that you're looking for. He is everything that you need to know about God's will and purposes. If you can't connect with that, if it doesn't seem as if God is still speaking to you in Jesus, then I, I wonder if you fully grappled with the weight of what is said to you there. I want to close with this challenge. This is how John Piper, a pastor up in Minnesota, put it, speaking of this passage and of, and of the questions that we ask of God. Why is he not speaking to us? Why is he silent? This is the way he put it. I'm going to close with this. When I complain that I don't hear the word of God, when I feel a desire to hear the voice of God and get frustrated that he doesn't speak in ways that I may crave, what am I really saying? Am I really saying that I have exhausted this final decisive word revealed to me so fully in the New Testament? Have I really exhausted this word? Has it become so much a part of me that it has shaped my very being and given me life and guidance? Or have I treated it lightly, skimmed it like a newspaper, dipped in like a taste tester, and then decided I wanted something different? something more. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to be content in the word that you have spoken to us. Help us to be joyful in it, to receive it, not begrudgingly, but to receive it for what it is, a word of hope, a gospel that is good news to us. There's so much in us that doesn't want to receive it that way. So much in us that wants more than what you've said. We know it's a matter of humility that we've got to strive for, to rest in Jesus and to let him be enough, to let him be greater than any message that could come from any other source. We want that. We want that sense. Would you give it to us, we pray? Would you make us satisfied in him? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.